0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. of the Institute for International Studies here and I'd like to welcome you to this, um, to the Robert G. Wesson Lecture in International Relations Theory and Practice. Um, the lecture series was made uh, possible by uh, a gift from the late uh, Robert Wesson who was a distinguished writer on international affairs and a senior research fellow at the Hoover Institution and his idea was to support a series of lectures that would deal with practical issues in international relations in an analytical and theoretically informed uh, manner. And I think the topic of today's uh, lecture is um, precisely the kind of issue that uh, does indeed require and will receive um, analytical uh, um, and uh, theoretically informed uh, analysis. Um, The right of humanitarian intervention has been an exceptionally uh, controversial issue in the last uh, decade, both when uh, intervention happened, as in Kosovo, and when intervention didn't happen, as in Rwanda. And the UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, uh, in his report to the General Assembly in the year 2000, Uh, challenged the international community to try to forge a consensus around the issue of intervention, humanitarian intervention, when it should occur, um, under whose authority, and how. And the Canadian government, in response, set up an independent international commission on intervention and state sovereignty uh, to uh, respond to the Secretary General's challenge. And our speaker today, Gareth Evans, was one of the two co- co-chairmen of that commission, and the commission report uh, has has just been uh, published. So it would be hard to find a better person to, to address this um, extremely important topic. Uh, we've been fortunate in this lecture series to have some very distinguished uh, speakers, and we are once again uh, fortunate uh, in our speaker, Gareth Evans, is the president and CEO of the International Crisis Group, uh, which is a private, multilateral, or multinational organization committed to strengthening the capacity of the international community to uh, anticipate, prevent, uh, and contain uh, conflict. Um, it's been active in many areas of the world. It has a, a, wonderful, a really excellent website. Um, crisisweb.org, which I recommend to uh, people interested in the many crises and conflicts taking place in the world. And uh, since the uh, 11th of September, uh, the International Crisis Group has opened offices in uh, Pakistan and in the Middle East. Uh, So it is a very active, actually, to my mind, an extremely interesting institutional development to enable the international community to respond to the problem of uh, conflict and to prevent conflict. Um, Gareth Evans took uh, that position at the beginning of the year 2000 after a very distinguished career in Australian politics. Um, He entered Parliament uh, in 1978, But before that was a barrister specializing in industrial law and an academic lawyer specializing in constitutional and civil liberties law. Uh, He was a cabinet member for 13 years in the labor governments in Australia under Prime Ministers uh, Hawke and Keating. Uh, He served as attorney general, as um, minister for resources and energy, minister for transport and communications, and for eight years as foreign minister. Uh, And he was uh, an exceptionally uh, energetic and imaginative foreign minister involved in uh, the peace plan for Cambodia, in setting up the Asia-Pacific Cooperation Forum, and initiating the Canberra Commission on the Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. So I won't go through the long list of achievements and um, activities, but I I do want to note uh, the long association that uh, he has had with the Institute for International Studies, uh, both uh, for many years with APARC, our Asia Pacific Research Center, when he took part in the meetings of uh, Asian leaders that that center organized, and he's now a member of the Institute's International Advisory Council. So it's with uh, great pleasure and great anticipation that I welcome you here uh, today, Gary.
1: Well thank you David for that very generous introduction and thank you all for coming along. Until terrorism overwhelmed international attention after September the 11th the really big issue in international relations the one that must have launched a thousand PhDs was the right of humanitarian intervention. The question of when, if ever, it's appropriate for states to take coercive action, and in particular coercive military action, against another state for the purpose of protecting people at risk in that other state. Man-made internal catastrophe and what the international community should do about it is what really preoccupied international relations practitioners commentators and scholars more than any other issue in the decade after the end of the Cold War. The cases around which that debate centered are really I think all burnished in our memory. They are as David said in his introduction ones both when intervention happened and when it didn't happen. There was the debacle of the international intervention in Somalia in 93 the pathetically inadequate response to genocide in Rwanda in 1994, which you'll recall some 800,000 people were brutally massacred. There was the utter inability of the UN presence to prevent murderous ethnic cleansing in Srebrenica and Bosnia in 95. And then there was the issue of NATO's intervention without Security Council approval in Kosovo in 1999. They weren't the only cases. Uh, There was northern Iraq, there was Liberia, Haiti, Sierra Leone as well, and also the more marginal situation of East Timor. I say marginal because Indonesia, under pressure, did eventually consent to the Australian-led intervention, so it wasn't strictly speaking a coercive intervention. But that said, it's Somalia, Bosnia, Rwanda, Kosovo, that are the cases we all remember most starkly, and between them they raised the full range of legal and moral and political and operational issues that the debate on humanitarian intervention is all about. None of these cases was well or confidently handled by the international community. (coughs) With Somalia, uh, Bosnia and Rwanda, such interventions as did occur were too little, too late, misconceived, Poorly resourced, poorly executed, or all of the above. And with NATO's intervention in Kosovo, <coughs> you remember Security Council members were divided, the legal justification for action without Security Council authority was asserted but largely unargued. The moral or humanitarian justification for the action, which on the face of it was very much stronger was nonetheless clouded by allegations that the intervention triggered more carnage than in fact it avoided, and the means by which the Allies waged the war also continued for some time, justly or not, uh, to be much complained about. So every one of the, the big cases generated major international controversy, usually controversy that was too late to be useful, and certainly never enough to settle the issues of principle once and for all, including the role and responsibility of the United Nations, and the nature and limits of state sovereignty. So by the dawn of this new century, the debate really remained wholly inconclusive. Intense disagreement persisted as to whether there was a right of intervention, how and when it should be exercised, and under whose authority. The United Nations Secretary-General, Kofi Annan, as David also said in his introduction, is one of those who's tried hardest to get some sense into it all, some coherence. Deeply troubled by the issues, deeply troubled by the inconsistency of the international response, and I think also deeply, privately troubled by his own role in the UN Secretariat in the Rwanda case in the mid-90s. He challenged the General Assembly in 99, challenged it again in 2000 at the Millennium Summit, to find a way through these dilemmas. And he posed the question in the starkest of terms. In one of his speeches he said this, if humanitarian intervention is indeed an unacceptable assault on sovereignty, how should we respond to Rwanda, to Srebrenica, to gross and systematic violations of human rights that affect every precept of our common humanity? Kofi Annan's own view was very clear. Surely no legal principle, not even sovereignty, can ever shield crimes against humanity, he said in 99, and as recently as his Nobel Prize lecture in Oslo just last December, he was still saying it. The sovereignty of states, he said, must no longer be used as a shield for gross violations of human rights. The trouble was that in the General Assembly debates of 99 and 2000, which followed Kofi's initial calls, he was rewarded for the most part by cantankerous exchanges between the delegates in which fervent supporters of intervention on humanitarian or human rights grounds on the one hand, and anxious defenders of state sovereignty on the other, dug themselves deeper and deeper into opposing trenches from which, frankly, they've still not yet emerged. The academic debate, I have to say, wasn't really all that much more helpful. There's been a great deal of writing, some of it, much of it, in fact, very thoughtful, but none of it very influential. The most well-known studies have probably been those commissioned by governments, the Danish government through its think tank DUPI, the Netherlands government through its Advisory Council on International Affairs, and the Swedish government through its International Commission on Kosovo, chaired by Richard Goldstone from South Africa and co-chaired by Carl Tum. A common theme of these reports, and indeed many other scholarly analyses, has been a distinction drawn between legal interventions on the one hand and legitimate interventions on the other. But intellectually comforting, although this taxonomical distinction may be, it doesn't offer much guidance to political decision-makers as to what, in practice, they should actually do when confronted with these situations. And now, to compound the misery of it all for those of us who like a little bit of intellectual cleanliness and godliness in these matters and don't like to see such big issues unresolved, the truth of the matter is that since 9-11, the debate on this whole issue has more or less disappeared completely from public view. The preoccupation now, perfectly understandably, is how to capture and punish terrorists, how to mount sustainable defences against them, and the states who support them. And at least since President Bush's State of the Union address, we are all now further engaged in trying to understand the nature and the limits of the appropriate response to those states who threaten others explicitly or implicitly by their development of weapons of mass destruction. The conceptual issues involved in these sorts of of cases are very old ones. What are states entitled to do when faced with actual or apprehended attacks on their own territory or their own nationals by way of self-defense action authorized under Article 51 of the UN Charter? Or what are they entitled to do under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, which authorizes the use of force to maintain or restore international peace and security? These issues are hugely important in their own right, and they have many unresolved loose ends of their own, both in principle and practice. But they're quite distinct from the issues that are involved in the humanitarian intervention debate. The issues in the humanitarian intervention debate are about, I repeat, the justification for intervening forcibly in other states to protect that state's own nationals. And that's something on which the UN Charter is absolutely silent. All that said, the debate about humanitarian intervention hasn't gone away, and it won't go away so long as human nature remains as fallible as it is. Internal conflict still remains the norm when it comes to serious violence. Of the 56 armed conflicts occurring between 1990 and 2000, which were identified by the Stockholm uh, International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI, as being major, major in the sense that they involved more than 1,000 battle deaths in a single year. Of those 56 major conflicts, 53 in fact in that decade were intrastate, internal, in character. So intrastate conflict is a phenomenon uh, that exploded with the end of the Cold War as the checks and balances and internal suppression that had maintained uneasy peace in so many places for so long fell away but it shows unhappily no great signs of diminishing even ten years plus later so unhappily it can only be a matter of time before reports emerge again from Central Africa from Central or South Asia from the Balkans or somewhere else of massacres or mass starvation or rape or ethnic cleansing occurring or apprehended. And then the question will arise all over again in the Security Council and in political capitals and in the media. What do we do? And this time round, we must have the answers. Few things have done more harm to our shared ideal that we're all equal in worth and dignity and that the earth is our common home than the inability of the community of states to prevent genocide, massacre, ethnic cleansing. The last decade was not, on any view, a proud one. The beginning of a new century, here as elsewhere, gives us the psychological chance to wipe the slate clean, to think through the issues afresh, to find new common ground, and to ensure, above all else, that there are no more Rwandas. It was against this background and to respond to this policy challenge that the Government of Canada, David again said in his introduction, on the initiative of then Foreign Minister Lloyd Axworthy, acting with the support of several major US foundations, including in particular the Hewlett Foundation here in the Bay Area, which I'm particularly grateful for their support, and the assistance of a couple of other governments, the UK and Swiss in particular, and the cooperation of quite a few other governments, the Canadian government with that support established in September 2000 the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, which I co-chaired along with the Algerian diplomat and UN special advisor Mohamed Sanoun. The objectives of the commission were essentially threefold, although we never got around to quite articulating them in such stark and perhaps vulgar terms. It was To produce a guide to action on responses by the international community to internal man made human rights violating catastrophe, which was three things. In the first place, intellectually credible and satisfying, not profoundly offending either the lawyers or the philosophers, and hopefully not offending international relations theorists either, although. I'm not sure that international relations theory these days is penetrable enough for anyone else to know whether they're being offended or not, or to mind very much if they did know. But I'm sorry, this is meant to be an international relations theory lecture, but I'm a bit grumpy about international relations theorists, as you probably gather. Anyway, the second uh, of our objectives was to produce a report which was not likely to be rejected out of hand by either North or South or by the permanent five members of the Security Council, or by any other major international constituency. In other words, to produce a report which was at least capable of acceptance in principle by governments as a framework for action. The third objective was to produce a report which was actually capable in practice, not just in theory or in anticipation, but in practice of actually motivating action and mobilizing support when a situation demanding such action actually arose. Well, the Commission has now just published and presented its final report and our hope is that we might just succeed where others have failed in adding value in all these three respects. And there are several good reasons why we may not be totally deluding ourselves in this respect. The first reason is that the exercise was by far the most representative and consultative of its kind ever attempted in this area. The Commission had a high profile and very high quality membership, evenly divided between developed and developing countries. From the south there was my co-chair, Mohamed Sanoon, there was Fidel Ramos, former president of the Philippines, there was Cyril Ramaphosa, the former head of the ANC in South Africa, there was Eduardo Stein, former foreign minister, a very distinguished one from Guatemala, and Ramesh Takur, an Indian who is now uh, vice-rector of the UN University in Tokyo. From the north, in addition to me, there was Lee Hamilton, who will be known to you all, former congressman, uh, Canadian human rights lawyer Giselle Kota Hapa, Michael Ignatieff, phenomenally distinguished scholar and writer now at Harvard, uh, Klaus Naumann, German general who was number two in NATO, with in addition uh, Vladimir Lukin uh, from Russia, uh, distinguished former Russian ambassador to the United States, and uh, head of deputy head of his his party in the russian parliament and also the former head of the red cross uh, cornelia somaruga who our chinese friends i guess might describe as a kind of northerner with southern characteristics Um, we traveled endlessly and we consulted our heads off Uh, the commission met in asia and africa as well as north america and europe we held round tables and other consultations in latin america the middle east russia china so it was highly representative highly consultative Secondly, we added value, I hope, because the exercise was extremely comprehensive in its scope, addressing not just the legal and moral dilemmas, the legal versus uh, legitimate debate, which was so familiar, uh, but operational, political issues as well. It took into account and tried to build upon all the best work that had been done in the past, and the report, which we kept rather slim, 80 pages, had attached to it this supplementary volume of 400 pages, which uh, contains a huge bibliography and an awful lot of uh, well-edited scholarly writing, um, you know, which is really a pretty complete account of what the debate has been all about and the factual foundations uh, for it. Together you'll be pleased to know with a, with a zappy kind of CD-ROM in the back of the uh, report, so you get all of this electronically and it's all available on websites for anyone who wants to know all this stuff. Anyway, it was a comprehensive exercise, really attempting to not just uh, reinvent the wheel but to build upon all the thoughtful work that had gone on to this. The third reason why we think we might have added value was, was it's because the whole exercise has had from the outset a quite sharply practical political focus. None of us want to see this report disappearing from sight uh, straight after its release, having no other life than in libraries and research seminars and and Wesson lectures. We've uh, recommended that its conclusions be debated in the UN General Assembly, and I think that's going to happen, and we recommended that our conclusions be adopted by the Security Council itself as a working guide to its own deliberations. (coughs) And the Secretary General, who's um, spoken in the last few days very warmly in praise of our report, Uh, has indicated uh, his own personal willingness to take it forward um, in the Security Council in this respect. And the preliminary responses from a number of states, key states, both North and South, has also been very positive. That said, no one can have any illusions about the difficulty of getting adopted in either the Assembly or the Security Council resolutions or even informal guidelines (coughs) which are drafted with any precision or clarity or teeth. That's not the style of the international community but that's certainly our hope. But above all we hope this report will add value by being innovative, bringing some genuinely new ways of thinking about this issue into the debate and making it possible to bridge the gulf that has characterise state attitudes as I've described them so far. And the conceptual starting point in this endeavour has been to try to turn the whole debate on its head and to re-characterise it not as a debate about the right to intervene, but rather about the responsibility to protect. A responsibility owed by all sovereign states their own citizens in the first instance, but a responsibility to protect that must be picked up by the international community of states if that first-tier responsibility is abdicated or if it's incapable of exercise. So how do we make the argument for the international responsibility to protect? What precisely is its content? What are the circumstances in which it can and should be exercised? Does it help us any more than talk of right of humanitarian intervention helped in wrestling with these questions of legitimacy, authority, operational effectiveness, political will that have dogged the whole debate? So (coughs) it's to these questions that I now turn, starting as one has to, with just what is and what is not involved in the modern notion of sovereignty. The essence of the notion of sovereignty in the Westphalian system that has governed international relations since the 17th century, has been control. The capacity to make authoritative decisions with regard to the people and resources within the territory of the state. The principle of sovereign equality of states is enshrined in Article 2.1 of the UN Charter. The corresponding norm of non-intervention is enshrined in Article 2.7 a sovereign state is empowered in international law to exercise exclusive and total jurisdiction within its territorial borders, and other states have the corresponding duty not to intervene in its internal affairs. After World War II, membership of the UN became the kind of final symbol of independent sovereign statehood, and thus the the seal of approval into the community of nations. The UN's an organisation dedicated to the maintenance of international peace and security on the basis of protecting the integrity, political independence and national sovereignty of its member states. But these verities, all of which you've heard umpteen times before, are really now nothing like so clear-cut as they once seemed. Not only are the overwhelming majority of today's armed conflicts internal, not interstate. But the proportion of civilians to military killed in them (coughs) increased from about 1 in 10 at the start of the 20th century to around 9 in 10 by the close of the century. And this has presented the UN, international organization, with with a major difficulty. How do you reconcile its foundational principles of member state sovereignty? and the accompanying primary mandate to international peace and security. We have to to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, that commitment in the Charter. How do you reconcile all that with the equally compelling mission to promote the interests and welfare of people within those states? The language of the Charter, we the people of the United Nations. How do you recognise, how do you reconcile rather that? Well, the key to meeting this difficulty is to rethink sovereignty in terms of its essence being not so much control, a traditional notion, as responsibility. And the Charter of the UN, when you think about it, is itself an example of a set of international obligations voluntarily accepted by member states. On the one hand, in granting membership to the UN, the international community welcomes the signatory state as a responsible member of the community of nations. On the other hand, the state itself, in signing the Charter, accepts the responsibilities of membership flowing from that signature. Thinking of sovereignty as responsibility has a threefold significance. (coughs) First, it implies that the state authorities are responsible for the functions of protecting the safety and lives of citizens and the promotion of their welfare. Secondly, it suggests that national political authorities are responsible to their citizens internally and to the international community through the UN at the same time. And thirdly, it carries with it the notion that the agents of state are responsible for their actions. They're accountable for their acts of commission and omission. The case for thinking of sovereignty this way, in these terms, is much strengthened by the ever-increasing impact of international human rights norms and the increasing impact in international discourse of the concept, not just of human rights, but of human security. Sovereignty as responsibility is being increasingly recognised in both those areas, in state practice. The adoption of new standards of conduct for states in the protection and advancement of international human rights has been one of the great achievements of the post-Second World War era. The Universal Declaration and the International Covenants on Civil and Political and Economic, Social and Cultural Rights mapped out the international human rights agenda established the benchmark for state conduct, inspired provisions in many national laws and international conventions, and have led to the creation as well of long-term national infrastructures for the protection and promotion of human rights. And accompanying all this has been a gradual, visible transition from a culture of sovereign impunity to a culture of national and international accountability with the international human rights norms and instruments being used as the concrete point of reference against which to judge state conduct. Reinforcing all this development in the last decade or so, there's also been an important shift in international thinking in what's involved in the concept of security, as extending beyond states to people, to physical safety, their economic and social well-being, respect for their dignity and worth as human beings, and, again, the protection of their fundamental rights and human freedoms. It's increasingly being acknowledged in this context that the fundamental components of human security, the security of people against threats to life, health, livelihood, personal safety, human dignity, can be put at risk not only by external aggression, but also by factors within a country, including security forces. Again, the focus becomes not so much what sovereign states are entitled to do, but what they're not entitled to do in the exercise of their responsibility to their own people. It's evident that, in fact, there's been a large and growing gap between the codified best practice of international behavior, as articulated in the UN Charter, whose explicit language nearly all emphasizes the respect owed to state sovereignty, and actual state practice as it's evolved in the 56 years since the Charter was signed, which emphasises the limits of sovereignty. We in the Commission were intrigued in the course of our worldwide travels and consultations to find the extent to which that gap was actually acknowledged. The defence of state sovereignty by even its strongest supporters in Latin America and Africa and Asia did not include anywhere that we heard any claim of the unlimited power of a state to do what it wants to its own people. We heard just no such claim at any stage. It was acknowledged that sovereignty implies a dual responsibility, externally to protect the sovereignty, to respect the sovereignty of other states, and internally to respect the dignity and basic rights of all the people within the state. In international human rights covenants, in UN practice and in state practice itself, sovereignty is now understood as embracing this dual responsibility. Sovereignty as responsibility, although nobody much has articulated before in quite these terms, sovereignty as responsibility does seem to have become the minimum content of good international citizenship. While there's not yet a sufficiently strong basis to claim the emergence in all this of something as formal as a new principle of customary international law, growing state and regional organisation practice, as well as Security Council precedent, do suggest at the very least an emerging norm or guiding principle, which we think can usefully be described in the Commission's language as the responsibility to protect. Whatever its foundations in theory and practice, there's very good reason to believe that using the language of responsibility to protect rather than the much more familiar language of the right to intervene will in fact be very useful in the policy debate, helping enormously to deprickle that debate and to get state actors thinking afresh about what the real issues actually are. Changing the terminology away from intervention to protection allows us for a start to get away from using the language of humanitarian intervention, which language has in fact always enraged humanitarian relief organisations from the Red Cross down, who have hated the association of the word humanitarian with any kind of military activity. But beyond that, talking about the responsibility to protect, rather than talking about the right to intervene has several big advantages. First, the responsibility to protect implies an evaluation of the issues from the point of view of those seeking or needing support rather than those who may be considering intervention. The terminology expressed this way refocuses the international searchlight precisely back where it should always have been on the duty to protect communities from mass killing women from systematic rape, children from starvation. Secondly, the responsibility to protect acknowledges that the primary responsibility in this regard rests with the state concerned, and that it's only if the state is unable or unwilling to fulfil this responsibility or is itself the perpetrator that it becomes the responsibility of the international community to act in its place. You get all that built into the notion of responsibility to protect in a way that's just lost when you come at this with your initial starting point being the right to intervene. You overlook that initial responsibility of the state, which is a key part of the whole argument. And the third thing that's involved and caught up in this language, the responsibility to protect, is, is a very important further consideration that it's an umbrella concept right? its very notion, responsibility to protect. It embraces, when you think about it, not just the responsibility to react, to jump in and do something in reaction to something that's happening right there, but it also conveys with it the notion of responsibility to prevent before things get to that stage and also the responsibility to rebuild, to follow through after that stage. And both of these dimensions have been really almost completely neglected in the traditional debate on humanitarian intervention, bringing them back to centre stage to rank in priority alongside the issue of reaction should, I think, do much to make the concept of reaction itself more palatable. Just to spell it out a little, the responsibility to prevent involves obviously addressing both the root causes and also the more direct and immediate causes of internal conflict and other man-made crises, putting populations at risk, using all the complex array of measures available, political and diplomatic, legal, economic, some military. Our report makes the point in the strongest and most explicit of terms that really prevention is the single most important dimension of the responsibility to protect and that is more than high time for national governments and the whole international community to be closing the gap between rhetorical support for prevention, which continues to be immense, and tangible commitment, which tends to be somewhat less than immense. Than immense. The responsibility to rebuild, again to spell that out a little, means following through after the event, providing full assistance with recovery, reconstruction, reconciliation, and addressing in the process the causes of the harm that the intervention was designed to halt or to avert. If military intervention action is taken because of a breakdown or abdication of a state's own capacity and authority in discharging its own responsibility to protect, there should be a genuine commitment to helping build a durable peace and promoting good governance and sustainable development. It's not just an optional extra, it's absolutely critical. That's what the current debate about the generosity or lack of it in the international community's response to the reconstruction of Afghanistan is all about. It's another story. Let me come now to the central issue of difficulty, which is military intervention. Because as as critical as these dimensions of prevention and rebuilding are, the core of the debate and the most difficult conceptual and political issues revolve around the issue of reaction. The argument is that the responsibility to protect whatever else it encompasses certainly implies, above all else, a responsibility to react to situations of compelling need for human protection. When preventive measures fail to resolve or to contain the situation, when a state's unable or unwilling to redress it, then interventionary measures by other members of the broader community of states may be required. Now these coercive measures may include uh, political, economic, judicial measures and extreme cases, but only extreme cases, they may also include military action. But what is an extreme case? Where should we draw the line in determining where military intervention is prima facie defensible? What other conditions or restraints, if any, should apply in determining whether and how that intervention should proceed? And most difficult of all, who makes these decisions? Who should have the ultimate authority to determine whether an intrusion into a sovereign state involving the use of deadly force on a potentially massive scale should actually go ahead? The Commission wrestled long and hard with these questions, all of them, and the enormous uh, literature that they've, uh, they've generated. But in the event, the task was a bit easier than it appeared, while there are almost as many different lists of criteria for intervention as there are contributors to the writing and discussion on all of this. The differing length of these lists, the different terminology involved, shouldn't conceal the fact that in reality there's an enormous amount of common ground to be found when one focuses on the core issues. It seemed to us on the Commission that all the relevant decision-making criteria here were capable of being summarised under six headings. First of all, just cause, the question of what's the appropriate threshold criteria for action. Then right intention, last resort, proportionality and reasonable prospects for further criteria which we've described as precautionary criteria. And a final one of right authority, a critical question of who decides, just the Security Council or anyone else. If you think all that terminology sounds a bit familiar, you're right. It has a long intellectual pedigree in just war theory, going right the way back to the early Middle Ages. But being a very PC uh, kind of a commission, claiming to articulate universal values rather than just any particular cultural subset, we decided that when it came to emphasising that particular Christian and Eurocentric connection, discretion might be the better part of valour. So you won't see any reference to just war theory or early medieval theorists. You'll just see a reference to just cause, right intention, last resort, proportionality, and so on. Well, let me say something about each of these criteria, because it's only when we focus on what they actually mean that you get to the heart of the debate. Beginning with the just cause threshold, military intervention for human protection purposes is justified in two broad sets of circumstances, and only two. Namely, in order to halt or avert first large-scale loss of life, whether it's actual or apprehended, whether it's with genocidal intent or not, which loss of life is the product either of deliberate state action or state neglect or inability to act, or a failed state situation, doesn't matter. But first one, large-scale loss of life. And secondly, large-scale ethnic cleansing. Again, actual or apprehended. Again, whether carried out by killing or not. Could be carried out by forced expulsion, by acts of terror, or by rape, where rape is perpetrated itself either as another form of terror or even more ugly in some ways, as a means of changing the ethnic composition of the group in question. So, they're the two essential criteria, large-scale loss of life, large-scale ethnic cleansing. While we made no attempt to quantify large-scale as such, we made it absolutely clear that military action can be legitimate as an anticipatory measure in response to clear evidence of likely large-scale killing or ethnic cleansing. Because without this possibility of anticipatory action, you'd have the invidious situation of the international community being placed in a quite morally untenable position of being required to wait until genocide actually begins before being able to take action to stop it. Well, we didn't want to be committed to that. The threshold criteria that we articulated are are wide enough to cover not only the deliberate perpetration of horrors such as occurred or were anticipated in Bosnia, Rwanda, and Kosovo, but situations as well of state collapse and the resultant exposure of the population to mass starvation, which was the situation in Somalia, you remember. Also potentially covered by those definitions would be overwhelming natural or environmental catastrophes, which may not in themselves be man-made, but where the state concerned is either unwilling or unable to cope, or to call for assistance, and significant loss <coughs> of life is occurring or is threatened. What aren't covered by the just cause threshold criteria as we articulated them, are a number of things which many people have argued over the years should be a justification for military intervention. And that's situations of human rights violations, such as systematic racial discrimination or political oppression, which nonetheless fall short of outright killing or ethnic cleansing. Again, uh, the overthrow of democratically elected governments Again, the rescue by a state of its own nationals on foreign territory. Although eminently deserving of external action of various kinds, including appropriate cases, of course, political, economic, military sanctions, we don't see these as cases which would justify military action for human protection purposes, which is what this debate is really all about. So that's the question of threshold. What about right intention? Moving now to these precautionary criteria. The primary purpose of the intervention, whether whatever other motives intervening states may have, the primary purpose must be to halt or avert human suffering. Overthrow of a particularly nasty regime is not as such a legitimate objective, though disabling that regime's capacity to harm its own people may be essential to discharging the mandate of protection. And what's necessary to achieve that degree of disabling will vary from case to case. One way of helping ensure that the right intention criterion is satisfied is to have military intervention always take place on a collective or multilateral rather than single country basis. Another is to look to whether and to what extent the intervention is actually supported by the people for whom's benefit the intervention is being mounted. Yet another is to look to whether and to what extent the opinion of other countries in the region in question has been taken into account and is supportive. It's worth adding, I think this thought, complete disinterestedness, the absence of any narrow self-interest at all, may be an ideal, but it's not likely in these cases always to be a reality. Mixed motives in international relations, as everywhere else, are a fact of life. Moreover, the budgetary cost and the risk to personnel involved in any military action may, in fact, make it politically imperative for the intervening state to be able to claim some degree of self-interest in the intervention, however altruistic its primary motive might actually be. To those domestic constituencies who may actually demand of their governments when it comes to intervention for human protection purposes that they not be moved by altruistic right intention. I think the best short answer these days is that good international citizenship is a matter of national self-interest. With the world as close and interdependent as it now is, and with crises in faraway countries, of which we know little, to recall a phrase from the 1930s, with crises in such countries as capable as they now are, of generating major problems elsewhere with terrorism, refugee outflows, health pandemics, narcotics trafficking, organised crime and the like. With all these things, it's strongly arguable that it's in every country's interest to contribute cooperatively to the resolution of such problems, quite apart from the purely humanitarian or moral imperative to do so. Moving on to the criterion of last resort, every diplomatic and non-military avenue for the prevention, (laughs) sorry that's mine, (laughs) turn it off, (laughs) it's probably my, (laughs) no excuse, Uh, every, uh, almost certainly my wife from Australia, But (laughs) every diplomatic and non-military avenue for the prevention or peaceful resolution of the humanitarian crisis must have been explored. That's what last resort means. The responsibility to react with military coercion can only be justified when the responsibility to prevent has been fully discharged. That doesn't mean that every such option must literally have been tried and failed. Often there simply won't be the time for that kind of process to work itself out. What last resort means is that there must be reasonable grounds for believing that in all the circumstances, if the measure had been attempted, if the lesser measure had been attempted, it wouldn't have succeeded. Proportional means, this is pretty self-evident, the scale, the duration, the intensity of the planned military intervention should be the minimum necessary to secure the humanitarian objective in question. The means have to be commensurate with the ends and in line with the magnitude of the original provocation. The effect on the political system of the country targeted should be limited, again, to what's strictly necessary to accomplish the purpose of the intervention. While it may be a matter for argument in each case, what are the precise practical implications of these various strictures? I think the principles involved are clear enough. Reasonable prospect is an interesting one. Military action can only be justified if it stands a reasonable chance of success that's to say, in halting or averting the atrocities or the suffering that triggered the intervention in the first place. Military intervention is not justified if actual protection can't be achieved, or if the consequences of embarking upon the intervention are likely to be worse than if there's no action at all. In particular, a military action for limited human protection purposes can't be justified if in the process it triggers a larger conflict. It will be the case that some human beings simply cannot be rescued except at unacceptable cost. Uh, perhaps the cost being a larger regional conflagration involving major military powers. In such cases, however painful the reality, coercive military action can no longer be justified. Action, sorry, Application of this precautionary principle would, on purely utilitarian grounds, be likely to preclude military action against any one of the five permanent members of the Security Council, even if all the other conditions for intervention described in what I've just been saying were met, simply because it's difficult to imagine a major conflict, a really major conflict being avoided, or success in the original objective being achieved if such action were mounted against any of them. Chechnya and Russia is the most obvious kind of current example. The same is true not only of the P5 members, but of other major powers who are not members of the Security Council. And Indonesia was, again, a classic example, 220 million people. It's just the case that nobody, but nobody, was going to mount an intervention in the East Timor case without Indonesia actually agreeing to it. The consequences would just have been inescapably escalatory and impossible to keep within the bounds of the original objective. Now all this raises obviously a familiar question of double standards. Intervention is something you can only do against people who don't satisfy this description of getting angry enough if they're intervened against to generate a bigger problem than the one you started with. There is a double standards question here. So what's the answer to that double question? Well the only one that is possible to offer is that is just this. The reality that interventions may not be able to be mounted in every case where there's justification for doing so is simply no reason for them not to be mounted in any case you've just got to recognize that reality and, and move on but we've wrestled with all of that and it was a very lively issue i can tell you in african asia and latin america and lots of other places but finally the criterion of right authority when it comes to authorizing military intervention for human protection purposes The argument is really pretty compelling that the United Nations, and in particular the Security Council, should be the the first port of call. The difficult question, very starkly raised by the case of Kosovo, is whether it should also be the last port of call. The UN is unquestionably the principal institution for building, for consolidating, and for using the authority of the international community. It was set up to be the linchpin of order and stability, the framework within which members of the international system negotiated agreements on rules of behaviour, legal norms of proper conduct in order to preserve the society of states. Thus, simultaneously, the UN was to be the forum the for mediating power relationships, for accomplishing political change that's held to be just and desirable by the international community, for promulgating new norms and for conferring the stamp of collective legitimacy. The authority of the UN to do all these things is underpinned not by coercive power, but by its role as the applicator of legitimacy. (coughs) It's the concept of legitimacy which acts as the connecting link between the exercise of authority and the recourse to power. Attempts to enforce authority can only be made by the legitimate agents of that authority. Collective intervention, blessed by the UN, is regarded as legitimate because it's duly authorised by a representative international body. Unilateral intervention is seen as illegitimate because it's seen as self-interested. Those who challenge or who evade the authority of the UN as the sole legitimate guardian of international peace and security, in specific instances, run accordingly the risk (coughs) of eroding its authority in general and also undermining the principle of a world order based on international law and universal norms. There are lots and lots of reasons to be dissatisfied with the role that the Security Council has in fact played so far, notwithstanding all that exalted set of reasons why it should be doing all this. It's generally uneven performance, it's unrepresentative membership, (coughs) it's inherent institutional double standards, with the Permanent Five veto power, but the Commission wrestling with all this <coughs> excuse me was in absolutely no doubt that there is no better or more appropriate body than the Security Council to deal with military intervention issues for human protection purposes. <coughs> that was certainly the overwhelming consensus that we found in all our consultations around the world. Not quite so overwhelming in Washington, but certainly overwhelming everywhere else. The political reality, quite apart from the force of the argument in principle, the political reality is that if international consensus is ever to be reached about when, where, how, and through whom military intervention should happen, it's absolutely clear that the central role of the Security Council is going to have to be at the heart of that consensus. Viewed this way, the task is not to find alternatives to the Security Council as a source of authority, but to make the Security Council work much better, more systematically, coherently, than it has on these issues. Hopefully the report, the recommendations of this Commission will carry their own momentum in this respect, including our recommendation which was suggested to us, in fact, by one of the P5 members, the French Foreign Minister, the suggestion of the permanent five members of the Security Council agree collectively not to apply their veto power in matters where their vital state interests are not involved, individually, to obstruct the passage of resolutions authorizing military intervention for human protection purposes in which, for which there is otherwise majority support on the Security Council. Very interesting proposition and one that's gonna cause quite lively debate, I think, within the Security Council when this gets to it. If the Security Council proves to be unable or unwilling to act, in circumstances which appear to cry out for such action, for example, another Rwanda or another Kosovo-like situation, it seems to us that there are only two institutional solutions available to that. One is, in fact, consideration of the matter by the General Assembly in emergency special session under the Uniting for Peace procedure, which was, in fact, used as the basis for operations in Korea in 1950, Egypt in 1956, and the Congo in 1960 and which may well have delivered, and delivered speedily, a majority recommendation for action in Rwanda, and especially the Kosovo cases, where there's very strong momentum from the Islamic uh, group, and it might just have happened. It wasn't tested, arguably it should have been, when the Security Council refused to act. The Uniting for Peace procedure is such that you are denied filibuster rights, and the whole thing comes to a head very, very quickly under the rules that have been agreed and entrenched. The other thing that can happen institutionally at the Security Council uh, doesn't help here is for action to be taken within the areas of their own jurisdiction by regional or sub-regional organisations under Chapter 8 of the UN Charter, provided that they seek, at least subsequently, authorisation from the Security Council for the action that they've taken. And that's what happened with the West African intervention in Liberia in the early 90s and Sierra Leone in 97, and there's a model there possible use in the future. But interventions by ad hoc coalitions or even more interventions by individual states acting without the approval of the Security Council or without the approval of the General Assembly or without the approval in the first instance of a regional or sub-regional grouping of which the target state is actually a member, interventions of this kind do not, it would be an understatement to say, Find wide favour. As a matter of political reality, I repeat again, it would simply be impossible to find consensus around any set of proposals for military intervention which acknowledged straightforwardly the validity of any intervention which was not authorised by the Security Council or the General Assembly. But that may still leave circumstances, we have to frankly acknowledge it, where the Security Council does fail to discharge its own responsibility to protect and fails to do so in conscience-shocking situations which are crying out for action. And it's a very real question in these circumstances as to which of two evils is, is the worst, the damage to international order if the Security Council is bypassed, or the damage to that order if human beings are slaughtered while the Security Council stands by. We in the Commission responded to this dilemma by articulating two important messages, political messages, really, I guess, to the Security Council and all of this. What we said first is that if the Security Council fails to discharge the responsibility in conscience-shocking situations, crying out for action, then it has to acknowledge the reality that concerned individual states simply may not rule out taking other means to meet the gravity and urgency of the situation. And there is a risk in such circumstances that without the discipline and without the constraints of UN authorization, that intervention won't be conducted for the right reasons, won't be conducted with the right commitment to the necessary precautionary principles. That's the first hard message to get home to the Security Council. The second hard message is this, that if following the failure of the Security Council to act, a military intervention is undertaken by an ad hoc coalition or by an individual state which does fully observe and respect all these criteria, all these principles, and if that intervention is carried through successfully, and if it's seen by world opinion to be carried through successfully, then this may have very enduring, serious, adverse consequences for the stature and credibility of the UN itself. It's pretty much what happened with the US and NATO intervention in Kosovo. And the truth of the matter is that the UN simply can't afford to drop the ball too many times on that scale. Now, none of this is the same as saying in so many words, yes, it's OK to go off and act if the Security Council doesn't choose to act decide to act, authorise action in these situations, and we as a commission trying to hold together North-South opinion, hold together a global consensus, couldn't go so far as to say, yes, it is okay to ignore the Security Council, but we went a long way, I think, to draw out the political consequences for the Security Council and for the UN system if they don't act in situations where all these criteria are satisfied. Well, you'll be pleased to know after this already nauseously long uh, presentation that I'm not going to summarise or even address all the issues dealt with in the Commission's report. For example, the discussions of operational principles about how military intervention should be planned and carried out, or even how to mobilise political will, international and domestic, which we also addressed in support of the Responsibility to Protect approach. Let me just conclude by, by saying these things. What I have tried to do is address the key conceptual issues with which the Commission wrestled and to put those conceptual issues in a sharply real-world political context rather than a purely abstract one. But that said, at the end of the day, the Commission's contribution may prove, in a sense, to be more of an abstract contribution than anything else, because what our whole report really depends upon is the acceptance of this central big idea, the conceptual shift from the right to intervene to the responsibility to protect. Because everything else really follows from that. The emphasis on the primary responsibility of the states themselves, the emphasis on prevention and rebuilding, as well as just reaction, and the force of the imperative to act when the circumstances cry out for it. It's wrong to be cynical about the power of ideas to influence the world of governments and intergovernmental action. If ideas are well formulated, well argued, expressed in language that can be readily understood, they can they do have an impact. However cynical or sceptical or indifferent to general principles as distinct from case-by-case case, on the merits said hocery, the practitioners of the real world may seem to be and indeed think themselves to be. Ideas do matter. The Brundtland Commission, for example, by inventing, as it did, the concept of sustainable development, you remember, creating created in that process a whole new basis for constructive dialogue previously utterly lacking between pro-development and pro-environmental activists and policy makers the world over. Now, a lot of that dialogue has been less than constructive since, but at least that found common ground on which to argue the issues out, and that was lacking before that concept was invented. So as much as we might hope otherwise, nothing is, I'm afraid, more certain that the international community will be confronted again by events all too resonant of those 1990s agonies in the Great Lakes, the Balkans, Haiti, Somalia, Sudan, Sierra Leone, East Timor, and elsewhere, and that it'll happen sooner rather than later. Reacting to these situations in the ad hoc and often quite ineffective or counterproductive way that we've acted to date is no longer the kind of luxury we can afford as interdependent global neighbours. If the Commission's report, with its new emphasis on the responsibility to protect as the central governing theme, can help bring about a more systematic, balanced, and less ideological debate of the main issues by the international community, and even more if it can provide an accepted framework for dealing with these matters as they arise in the future in concrete and positive ways, then we won't have been wasting our time. There must be no more Rwandas. As the Commission concluded its report by saying, if we believe that all human beings are equally entitled to be protected from acts that shock the conscience of us all, then we have to match the rhetoric with reality, principle with practice. We can't be content with reports and declarations. We must, as an international community, be prepared to act because we won't be able to live with ourselves if we don't. Thank you very much. You <laughs> <to the> <laughs> okay. well, conceptually speaking, all the cases you've mentioned with the possible exception of Iraq and the northern Iraq Kurds situation, all of those cases are conceptually different from the classic humanitarian intervention, ones of the 1990s. The basic difference again being that the humanitarian intervention or responsibility to protect cases, are those where you're intervening in another state for the primary and indeed overwhelming purpose of protecting the people of that state from neglect or attack or worse by its own government, its own authorities. (coughs) The post-9-11 situations are almost wholly about where you're intervening in another state to retaliate by way of self-defense for what that state has done, either directly or indirectly, through its harboring of terrorists, to you on your home territory, to your nationals on your home territory or around it. So, in a sense, the post 9 11 situations are very traditional international relations, UN-authorized sanctions, forms of attack. Uh, The justification is potentially twofold in the explicit language of the Charter. There's Article 51, the right to self-defence, which most people invoked as appropriate in the context of the attack on Afghanistan. This was a legitimate exercise in self-defence, given the assumption that Afghanistan had in fact harboured the perpetrators of the attack on America. Uh, Alternatively, if you want to add to, or add to, uh, the 51 uh, line of reasoning, uh, the classic Chapter Seven provision about threats to international peace and security, uh, which is a traditional rationale for Security Council authorized interventions in another country, because what that country is doing constitutes a breach of international peace and security. All the all the humanitarian intervention or responsibility to protect cases are ones which by definition are pretty much entirely confined to that state. There is a sense in which in a number of these cases where the Security Council did authorise intervention, albeit in a half-waked or imperfect way in the 1990s, they did in fact invoke Chapter 7. They said there was a a threat to international peace and security, even in Somalia, which was the hardest of all to do that. They said because of the potential refugee outflow next door and so on. But conceptually it's hard work. Uh, the language of the Charter basically is silent, which is why the humanitarian intervention debate has been such a difficult one. The language has been silent, and you have to work it up in the way that we did out of human rights and human security norms and find other ways of approaching it. <coughs> so that's the that's the conceptual distinction between them all. As I said, the Iraq case overlaps a bit uh, with the classic humanitarian intervention case, and indeed uh, the northern Iraq stuff um, in the 90s was... Uh, you know, very much an exercise of the international community acting to intervene to protect a particular subset of the Iraqi population. they the Kurds. In fact, you could say the, the no-fly zone enforcement of the Shiites in the south is another example as well. That's savoured of um, classic humanitarian intervention stuff, but um, well, it was expressly that, and, and there will be an element of that if any assault is mounted in the future against Iraq. No doubt this will be brought in aid to to argue for it, but the primary rationale is going to have to be self-defense or was going to have to be international peace and security. So that's all on the conceptual side. What about, you asked on the political side, how's all this going to play? Well, as I began by saying, I mean, one way all this post 9-11 stuff has played is to completely submerge uh, as a practical political debating issue. Uh, The whole argument about humanitarian intervention was the biggest issue of the 90s year in, year out, endless subject for seminars, endless debates in the UN General Assembly and elsewhere, it just disappeared you know, without trace over the last few months. So we, we're not dropping our report at the best possible time in terms of generating notice for it. But the short answer is that um, as hard as it is to attract attention for it, sooner or later another one of these issues is going to arise. And I hate to think it, but it almost certainly will be sooner and one can name half a dozen places around the world where it's likely to happen. So, once again, we're going to be right back into decision-making process. And in a sense, it's not a bad time to be getting these characters on the Security Council and elsewhere, rather than in the context of a particular case, but without having a particular case in front of them, and having the world's attention elsewhere, to actually get agreement on some principles, which might mean that in the future it's possible to much more readily get agreement uh, than was the case over Rwanda, Kosovo, and so on. Uh, whether the you know, disposition to jump in, in terms of the 9/11 stuff, unilaterally and otherwise, is going to change the dynamics and make it more or less easy to mobilise people in the future. I just don't know quite how that one is going to play. What I think is is critical that in the responsibility to protect context, and this is where again I think the language is helpful in talking in this terms rather than right to intervene terms all the emotional resonance that the big guys throwing their weight around generates when you use the language of the right to intervene. If you can get away from that and talk about responsibility collectively to protect, it's much easier to get ready acceptance of a collective responsibility to do it together or to collectively give the authority to the guy who can do it, you know, to do it solo but on behalf of the rest. So if we can manage that conceptual shift and get some guidelines agreed, better still if we can get a General Assembly resolution passed which actually captures this this language, um, I think we've got a better chance of mobilising that response in the future. Yep. Can people introduce themselves? You probably know each other, but I don't. Well, again, that's something that's off to one side a bit um, as compared with this exercise, but I was um, the original architect of the uh, report of the Canberra Commission on the elimination of nuclear weapons, in a sense got the thing started, actually reported after my government left office, so we didn't have the chance to to run the thing around, but I mean, the the basic argument is that if you're serious about nuclear proliferation, you've got to get serious about elimination because so long as any state has nuclear weapons, others will want them. Psychologically, there's just an imperative. We've seen it in South Asia. We're going to see it elsewhere. So long as any other state, so long as any state has nuclear weapons, sooner or later they're going to be used. If not by design, then by accident came devilishly close to happening during the Cold War on multiple periods, occasions which are now coming out into the public domain, how much more likely is it to occur with less than perfectly developed command control systems and a whole bunch of new potential proliferators? And, of course, the consequences will be devastating if that happens. So we're trying to, my organisation and a lot of others, are trying to keep that debate alive about nuclear weapons proliferation um, along with chemical, biological... It's bounced to center stage in some respects with the axis of evil stuff, with the brand new enthusiasm for preemptive action against potential proliferators. Uh, I just simply hope that that enthusiasm does actually translate into a respect for process and using the Security Council and all the methodology that's available for acting when action is actually defensible. But I I suspect that it's going to be a lot more ad hoc than that. So, I mean, it's, it's a long and complicated story. It's a little bit off to one side. I haven't been personally deeply involved, nor has the International Crisis Group been deeply involved in the campaign for nuclear weapons elimination as such, but it's, it's back on the agenda, and I hope very much that uh, we can regenerate some momentum on that issue. Um, yeah. Well, several points. One, the UN is wholly a prisoner of its member states. The UN can only do what its member states, and in particular the big guys, allow it to do. And it's always wrong, but very understandable and easy, to fall into the habit of blaming the system, the secretariat, you know, the headquarters for inaction or incapacity, when most of the time, frankly, the problem is with the Member States not giving the mandate. Secondly, the UN's real role when it comes to hot-button security issues is not to be the actor, but really, as I said, in the lecture, the applicator of legitimacy. And the Security Council can, in fact, meet you know remarkably quickly and confer that legitimacy if there is someone willing to pick up the pieces and act. And what's become you know quite accepted and acceptable is the notion not of international forces being gathered together with all the cumbrous logistics and command and control problems that ge- generates, but rather the UN authority being vested in you know a coalition or increasingly these days, a single UN member with the capacity to act quickly. And frankly, there's in the case of Rwanda, which is the starkest and most horrible example in ninety four, there was no institutional reason, in terms of the inherent cumbrousness of the UN process or anything else, why the UN didn't act very, very quickly then. There was a limited number of people on the ground, but not nearly enough to do the job, and they weren't, frankly, given the mandate to do it. And the reason they were not given the mandate is Madeleine Albright, in particular, on behalf of the US, and a lot of the others were know better, were preoccupied, consumed with everything else, uh, had the Mogadishu experience recently behind them, the American soldier's body being dragged through the streets. They thought the political support was not there domestically. They didn't take seriously enough the warnings that were coming at them in floods after the first couple of days that a genocidal catastrophe was at a high water. And it was a failure of political decision making at that level. It wasn't a failure of the system. Srebrenica was another example, and that's worth you mentioning. And so, I mean, that was a classic example of again a political failure, uh, because the UN Security Council mandate that was given to the safe haven keepers was not remotely enough for them to be able to do a protective job in practice. I mean, the poor goddamn Dutch peacekeepers, standing around a few hundred of them, uh, without being given the orders or without having the capacity, if they did have the orders, to react to stop this are not to be blamed for what was a systemic failure. It was a systemic failure not of the Secretariat, not of the Secretary-General, not of anybody else, but frankly of the key, you know, key member states who just would not pick up the pieces and, uh, and run on this. And thus the critical necessity to get some very hard, clear criteria identified to shift the focus to this concept of protection and everything else so that people come at this in the future with a different mindset than they've had in the past and that's that's what it's all about sorry i, I don't know yeah. what well, I, I right well Okay, well, I mean, well, as I've said, in that situation, um, if the Security Council can't or won't act, as it refused to act in the Kosovo situation of recent memory, and, you know, the General Assembly doesn't pick up the pieces within 24, 48 hours, as it can, and I hope in the future it might in those situations, then the reality is is that, you know, in at least some of these cases, mercifully some country will in fact choose to act as the US did on that occasion and I'm very glad that it did and a hell of a lot of other people who owe their lives to it so acting are very glad that it did. But what it wasn't very satisfactory for it to happen that way because it does undermine the credibility stature of the whole UN system itself which is important if you're going to do this stuff properly and have a deterrent impact and so on in the future. And so what's critical is that it be rammed home to people in that system and to other governments, that if they don't work up a system of criteria and that they don't work up a capacity to respond quickly and decisively, not by mobilising complex multilateral forces which take forever to put together, but by authorising someone who can do the job to get out there and do it. If they don't, then people are going to go on acting in the real world but that it's going to be very counterproductive in terms of the larger institutional momentum, credibility, respect, which is pretty important even for those people who hate the UN or are cynical about it, Um, you know, have a long history of being critical of it. I mean, they all deep down inside acknowledge that if it didn't exist, we'd have to yet again reinvent it, as we did after the last war.
0: Sorry, Yeah.